Take your Bibles and, and go with me to Matthew 28. Um, I've just titled this, I've used this title before, but the sermon has been adjusted. <laughs> I just call it baptism. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, and it really is. I want to talk for a moment about what we're about to do here uh, because it's so vitally important. And I want to encourage you today, don't think small thoughts about baptism. Think big thoughts. It's not a game, and it's not a charade. It's a lot like a wedding ring. When I slipped that ring on Elizabeth's finger nearly 35 years ago, next month will be 35 years, I had two thoughts. Number one was, what is she thinking? <laughs> and the other thought was, my life is about to change. And it really did. Um, I was an incredibly heavy sleeper, literally until I put that ring on her finger. And from then on, I knew I was responsible for the life of another. I don't think I've slept heavy since then. I hear every single uh, creak in the house, except the baby crying. It's amazing. I can sleep through that one. <laughs> But I hear all those things because I am, I am responsible for the well-being of another human being. And not just any human being, the one who is the closest and most precious to me of all people. It signifies a lifelong commitment, and so does baptism. Vance Havner, the old gospel preacher, put it this way, we may never be martyrs. But we can die to self, we can die to sin, to the world, to our plans and ambitions. That is the significance of baptism. We have died with Christ and rose to new life. And that is what this signifies. This is, this is can I say it? This is a bigger deal than getting married. And marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. This is also a picture, and we're going to talk about that today. The first thing, I just, I just try to make this as simple as possible because we have kids in here, and I want them, I truly want Sophia to leave and have some type of basic understanding of what I said today. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the mandate of baptism. The mandate of baptism. And it's found in Matthew 28. I've asked you to turn there. Matthew's Gospel, the 28th chapter. Uh, beginning in verse number 18. The end of Matthew. This is Jesus on the mountain with his disciples. The Bible says this, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, Here was Jesus' last words uh, to his disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Matthew adds an amen, or a so be it, at the end of this command. So we see here that baptism 
is a mandate. It is a command, not a suggestion. By the way, the Ten Commandments are Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions. Amen, church? If you're, if you're, a, if you're a, a child today, and by child I mean your parents are still here, the Fifth Commandment is not a suggestion. You honor your father and your mother. That doesn't mean they're always honorable. I can attest to that personally. I've not always been honorable. Right? However, the command stands. It's not the kind, the, the, the type of parent is not in view here. It's the fact that there is a parent. There's a father and a mother, and they must be honored. And, and we get to do that. We get, this is one of the few times in this dark culture that we live in that we're, our attention is called to that. It is a command, not a suggestion. I want you to notice in verse 19, he says, Go therefore, and what's the first thing he says there? To do what? Make disciples. And make disciples of whom? All nations. You have to understand it up to this point, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, everything that God was doing up to this point was really dealt with one specific nation, the nation of Israel. Israel was to be God's exemplary people who were to exemplify loving God and obeying Him. And as a result of that, to invite the rest of the world to join. They didn't do any of that. Uh, they turned inward and turned rules meant for blessings into rules made for burdens. And Jesus came and confronted so much of this, which ultimately led to his crucifixion. But Jesus says, all of the power is mine, all authority, I have it all because of his resurrection is given to him, not just in heaven, but also where, church? On earth. And because he does, he says, go. And literally that is a continual present tense. It says, as you are going, as you are going out with this message, as you are joining me in the expansion of the kingdom, here's what you need to do. You will go out and you will make decisions. Is that what the Bible says? No, we will make disciples. And what the church has done over these last 50 years is we have ceased making disciples and we've gone after decisions. Because what you say and decide in this room is great, but it means nothing unless that decision carries with you out there at your home, at your office, at your school. We're not after decisions. We're after disciples. And disciples are made. They are created. Interestingly enough, that word make disciple, and the way this is, is laid out in the, in the Greek language, <laughs> the word to make a disciple is the main and, and only main verb in the whole sentence. The other two are what's called defining participles, baptizing them and teaching them are the YBH of the only mission we have, which is to make a disciple. What does YBH stand for, church? Yeah, yeah but how? So the main, really Jesus has one message for his men as they go out with the message of the gospel, and it's simply this, make followers of me make disciples and here's what that looks like when people repent of their sin and place their faith in me you baptize them and here's how you do it you do it in the name of the triune god the father the son and the holy spirit and then before they're even dry 
you begin to teach them what it looks like to be a member in good standing in the household of a righteous God. You teach them to do everything that I've commanded you. That's sanctification. And it is not separate from salvation. We have separated it to our detriment. So I'll just, I'll just work that out for you quickly. I think it's in your outline. Make disciples is redemption. That is regeneration. It's coming to faith in Christ. It's repenting of your sin. Realizing you're a sinner and you can't fix it. All you can do is sin and make it worse. You can't help yourself. How many of you know that's true? We had a guy, he used to have a guy in the community. He was the best door and window guy I've ever seen. Um, I forget which kid called him Mr. Hinkle. Who was that, Beth? Sam. Sam. There was some guy on some kid's show that was a fix-it man named Mr. Hinkle. And, uh, and Philip, you remind me so much of, of Alan, he, my door and window guy. You, you could be his brother. Um, and Alan would come, and he, he, I said, Alan, I got, I got a problem with my front door. I bought a new door, but will you come and fix it? He said, yeah. I said, how much would it cost me for you to install it? He said, $100. I said, what if I help you? He said, $200. <laughs> Why does he say that? Because if I help him, I'm not really going to help him. I'm just going to slow him down. I want to tell you something. God doesn't need your help today in saving you. The only thing you bring to the table when you come to God through Jesus Christ is the sin that made the cross necessary. You bring the sin and he does the saving. Amen? So this, this regeneration, this being born again, that's what making a disciple is all about. There's got to be an entry point. And by the way, we have made the, the starting line of a walk with Christ the finish line. That's part of the problem in the church today. Oh, good, you said the prayer, you got wet, you're all good. Not so fast. I said it yesterday and I'll say it again this week. If you live like hell... That's probably where you're going to end up. The following matters. And believers follow, literally walk in the dust of their rabbi and their king. That's what we're called to do. It's not just say a prayer and get wet. That's anybody, any, any sinner can do that. But saints follow. Something has happened. So making disciples is redemption. Baptizing them is identification. That's where we identify with our king. That's where we say, hey, this is the team I'm playing for. I'm a citizen of the kingdom, and Jesus is my king. And by the way, there's only two people in a kingdom. There's the king and the dumb, and you're not the king. <laughs> Sometimes we need to know that. You don't have a better idea for your life and living it than your king does for you. And that's a big part of baptism. It's like getting married. Life is that a two become one. And everything changes. That ring makes a difference. Years ago, not too many years ago, but some years ago, there was a song that came out, put a ring on it. Y'all, kids will know that song. <laughs> right? Because what's the old saying? Talk is what? Cheap. When you say you love me, prove it. Put a ring on it and live the rest of your life with me. It's identification. And in marriage, we identify with each other. And then this last one is to teach them. That's sanctification. All right. How many, how many of you could have used some good teaching the first year of your marriage? I shudder. I tell people, I said, my, my wife and I have had 33 years of marital bliss and one year that was rough. And that was that first year. Um, 
we were clueless. We were so clueless. Um, and and we, we really needed some help. We needed some help. We needed some training. And as a new child of God, you know what? We need training. And that's what this is all about. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, a man who knows that he is saved by believing in Christ does not, when he is baptized, lift his baptism to a saving ordinance. In fact, he is the very best protester against that mistake because he holds that he has no right to be baptized until he is saved. Right? And that's why we baptize believers according to the scriptural pattern. And that's that regeneration of making disciples. So that's the mandate. It is a command. You say, well, why does he command that? That's a good question. But the bottom line is he actually does command it. We're going to get into that in a minute. But the, the, the mandate is you be baptized. You repent, put your faith in Jesus, and here's how you start following him. You identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. And that gets us to the next. What is the meaning of baptism? What is the meaning of baptism? And for this, I'm going to invite you to turn to Paul's uh, epistle to the Romans in chapter 6. This is probably my favorite. If someone asked me, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? This is it. This is it. Romans 6. And if you gave me three, I'd say 6, 7, and 8. Because it explains it all. But Romans chapter 6, I want you to look at verse number 1. We're going to read down through the text. Here's what it says. Paul talking here. He says, what should we say then? So chapter 5 is the great and beautiful gospel. God's side of the gospel. First Adam came and messed it all up. The, the last Adam comes and he puts it all back together. He undoes. He is literally the heel that crushes the head of the serpent. And Paul has just described all this in the most beautiful uh, uh, words possible. And he ends up by saying, um, As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we say to that, Paul says in verse number 1? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Should we keep sinning so we can get more of God's grace? And he says in verse 2, absolutely not, certainly not. Literally as God forbid. How shall, and then he asks the question, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know? By the way, when Paul says do you not know, he means everybody knows. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, Write this down somewhere in your outline. There's a drop of water in that verse. That, that verse baptized, that, and that whole term there has nothing to do with what we're about to do. That is, that is the spiritual reality that we're going to reenact in a minute. As many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. See, there's a big change. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, underline this in your Bible, our old man was crucified with Him to the end of that, or so that, the body of sin might be done away with. And then he clears it up. Make sure you understand what he's saying. So that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Why? For he who has died has been freed from sin. 
How many of you know that the day you die is the day you quit sinning? Huh? Isn't that true? Well, let me tell you something. When you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, something called you dies, and it's the old you. Paul, this is not a new teaching from the Apostle Paul in his earliest epistle, which was the epistle to the Galatians. He writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That old me is dead. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Something called Paul died with Jesus on the cross. And something called Paul was raised to a brand new kind of life. To walk out an existence that now thinks about sin what Jesus thinks about sin. We're new. The old you has died. And the new you has come to life. And it's important that we understand that. And he says right there, he doesn't even give you a guess. He doesn't even want you to guess what's happened. He said, no, it's, it's the old man. The old you. Now, Depending on your theological background, uh, we had a great debate about this in my systematic theology class that I taught. Um, whether you're a trichotomist or a dichotomist, which means there are two parts to man or three parts. Is there a body, a soul, and a spirit, or a body and a soul spirit that's sometimes the same thing, sometimes different? Right? It's a big, it's a big discussion. I personally think what the scripture says. There, there are several places where it describes your body, soul, and spirit all at once. I, I think we're a three-part whole in the very image of the Trinity itself created in that same way. I really do. You don't have to agree with me. You've got the right to be wrong, and that's okay. You can do that. But he said, which part of me went to the cross? Well, it's not my physical part. Do you have any scars from the cross on you? Are there holes in your hands and feet and your side? No. Do you have any memory of, of going back in time and being placed into Christ on that cross? I don't. What's left? So it's not my body, it's not my soul, it's intellect, emotion, and will. What's left? It's your spirit, that part of you. That's the true you. We are a spirit that has a soul that lives inside of a body. And a part of you that was created and designed to have a relationship with your Creator is the very part of you that died in Genesis chapter 3. What did God say to Adam? Not Eve, Adam. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He ate. Did he fall over? No, he lived 900 more years, folks. He surely didn't die physically. Did he lose his identity, have no idea who he was? No, he knew who he was, so it wasn't his soul. What died in Adam that day and Eve was their spirit, the part of them that was designed for the primary purpose of relating to God, and now they couldn't. Here's the problem. Something in them was resurrected and came new. That is now they were alive to sin. They were very much in a relationship with sin. So they started with a new man, and they got an old man. We start with an old man and get a new man. You see the difference? 
The old us, the old spirit that was hostile to God. Listen to me. If you ever wonder how bad your sin is, think about it this way. How, I mean, how bad am I really? How bad am I really? You are so bad in our sin that the kindest thing your creator could do for you was literally to take you back in time, place you in his son, and bring you to a bloody, violent end. That's how bad you are. That's how bad sin is. And it's not that your sins are great. Who you sin against is great. Who you sin against is eternal. We sin against the holy God, the creator of the universe. And as R.C. Sproul says, every sin is treason against the sovereign king of the universe. You have committed treason by the slightest of your sins. And the kindest thing our redeeming God could do is to bring us to a definite violent end as he places us into his son on that cross. Oh, but he doesn't leave him there, does he? We are resurrected with this Christ. We pick it up in verse number 8 of Romans 6. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also, what? Live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion. Death has no call on the, soul, on, the, on the body of Christ, this glorified body. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now look at verse 11. What am I supposed to do with that? Likewise, just like him, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a verse. That word reckon is an accounting term. I hope you have a budget. Um, or for those of you that don't like budgets, a spending plan. It's the same thing. makes you feel better. <laughs> uh, I hope you have a spending plan or a budget. And you know what you do with that spending plan or budget? When, you get, when your income comes in, hopefully the very first thing or what you should put as the first thing in a category by itself, you reckon uh, a, proportionate, a proportion of that income that you invest in God's kingdom. Right? A portion of that percentage. I'm going to put that in the in kingdom investment category. Well, then what's the next most important thing? Well, we've got to live somewhere, so there's a house payment. All right? And it goes in that category. And then there's the food. And if you've got teenage sons like me, it's bigger than the house payment. <laughs> okay? The food category. Uh, and then you, you move all the way down the line to things that aren't as important um, to things that aren't even necessary. And I get to do the budget in our house, so hunting and fishing supplies comes before food. But my wife's craft supplies, that's at the end. <laughs> it's not even necessary. Um, oh, stop it. You're just like me. <laughs> and it's not even true. She, she's a blessed lady, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and if she doesn't, I will. <laughs> yeah, you budget it. You take Now, is all that money in the same account? Yeah. Is it budgeted in my account at the bank? Does the bank know that, you know, we spend more for food than we do for mortgage? No, the bank's got no idea. It's all in the same place, but you reckon it to be in categories. Are you with me? Shake your head. You get it? That's this word reckon. You know what Paul says? When it comes to sinning to a believer who has died with Christ, been buried and resurrected with Christ, here's what you do. You look at yourself and you reckon yourself, oh, that's right, I'm in the category of dead to that sin because of Jesus Christ and I'm aligned to righteousness. Here's the most beautiful words in the world. 
when it comes to sin. And I had to have a brother help me with this as a young pastor. He said, he looked across his desk, his brother Art, and he said to me, he said, Paul, don't you realize that you don't have to sin anymore? He said, when you get that temptation of sin, and my, my besetting sin was anger. He said, when you feel that anger welling up in you, here's what you, here's what you do. You look at the whole thing and you say, I don't have to. You, I am dead to that. And, and that sin has no more power over me. A greater power is working in me, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, you are a new man. Act like it. And I want to tell you something. It's easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. That's the definition of maturity, by the way. Something I tell my kids all the time. You don't have to like it. You see how excited they are about that? <laughs> that was perfect. You don't have to like it. You just have to do it. Right? And once, you, once the doing starts, the liking it eventually catches up. It's growing up in our faith. Sin has no more call on your life. We're alive to God. Therefore, do not let allow sin to reign in your mortal body, verse 12, that you should obey it in its lusts or desires. And then he goes on to say, oh yeah, and, and stop presenting your members, as these things here, as instruments to unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, he reiterates it, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. That's what this is about. That's why this is such a big deal. Such a big deal. The old me is dead. The old man is dead. I'm going to have to commend you to last week's sermon. I, I told somebody this morning, I wish I would have waited and preached that sermon this week. But here's the reality. When you have repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus and are walking in the dust of your king, you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. Sinner is a term that was designed to bring dread of judgment upon you. Don't you ever call yourself a sinner if you have repented, put your faith in Jesus, and are following him. The Bible calls you a saint. And that leaves you no excuse for sin. Baptism is a reenactment, an outward reenactment of an inward reality. I died, something called me, died in the cross of Christ. I was buried, was raised with Christ with a new unified spirit, one with the Holy Spirit. I now refuse to allow sin to rule over me because I have a new king. Romans 6.14 That's why you'll see it on the screen here in a moment. When our candidates for baptism come, one of the first thing they're going to say as they face you is, I believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. And by the way, that word Christ means king. You're confessing Christ as king, not just king, your king. And then they will be asked this question. The next one on the screen. Do you this day before Almighty God, the holy angels and the gathered saints, forfeit your right to refuse your king's will? What are you giving up? Everything. If he is your king and your sovereign, he owns you. You exist to do the will of your king. The day I put that ring on Elizabeth's finger and she put that ring on mine, 
we died to everybody else so that we could live to one another. This is no different. This may be of yet a greater importance. All right, real quick, give me four minutes and we'll, we'll finish this part, but the method. Great debate over this. What's the proper way to be baptized? So I'm, I'm going to break this down into two places. Um, the how and the who. Who is to be baptized and how are they to be baptized? Um, we believe, as we look as close to Scripture and follow it as closely as we can, that, that every Scripture in which baptism is detailed is by immersion. Is that a hill to die on? I will tell you, our ancestors died on that hill at the hands of some of the reformers. They were willing to die for the right to obey Christ in immersion. The Bible says that Jesus went down into the water, came up out of the water. The, the baptism of the eunuch, he said, hey, here's some water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? The Bible says that Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and came up out of the water. Later on in, in uh, Matthew's gospel, talks about John as he moved his, his location of baptizing. He moves to a location, as the scriptural historical record says, that had much water. Why do you need much water? If you're going to sprinkle, you just need a jar, right? But he went to a place of much water. Also, the reason we, we, do, we do baptism by immersion, I work for the funeral home. You ever heard the term six feet under? It's not true. It's actually deeper than that. When, when someone dies, you bury them well. You put them all the way under, right? And it, is, it pictures the death, the burial under the earth and the resurrection to new life. So as a picture and as the historical scriptural record tells us, immersion fits best. Well, what about the who? Who is baptized? This is very simple. It is baptism is for regenerate persons, people who have the ability to exercise volitional faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are to be baptized as an expression of faith. We believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ in His death and resurrection. So our understanding of the New Testament is that the meaning of baptism includes the fact that an expression of faith of the one being baptized must be evident. It is not something that an unbeliever can do because there's no faith. It's not something that an infant can do because there's no expression of faith. That's why we don't baptize infants. Um, there are several passages that have had a great influence on me over the years in understanding that. I'll just give you two. One is Colossians 2. 11 and 12, here's what it says, In Him, in Christ, you were also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, so not physical but spiritual, by putting off the body of, this, of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ. So Paul talks about a, a spiritual circumcision here, not a physical act, where God cuts away the old sinful us. What's that sound like? I am crucified with Christ. There it is. It's synonymous with the new birth. Then he speaks of baptism right after that having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we see faith always accompanying baptism. It comes first. Um, Paul shows the same way of thinking about baptism. Just jot this down in Galatians 3, 26 to 27. In Christ, you are all sons of God. Look at this, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see it? There's faith first, then baptism. There's regeneration first, then obedience. Matter of fact, this is the, we often like to call this the first step of obedience. Then Paul goes on to say, then he says four, which is connecting this way of becoming sons of God through faith with baptism. And I think the order is important. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Do you see the connection there? That explanation with the word for only makes sense if baptism is understood as an acting out of saving faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, the apostle says, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Or turn it around. Since you were baptized into Christ, therefore we know that in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Why? Because that's what baptism means. You were baptized into Christ by faith. So baptism without faith was inconceivable to the apostle Paul. So therefore, we baptize only regenerate people who can make a profession and confession of faith in Jesus Christ. I close today with the words of Matthew Henry. He says this, Take Jesus for your king, and by baptism swear allegiance to him. Take him for your prophet and hear him. Take him for your priest to make atonement for you. I'll say one more thing. Every time someone's baptized, it should remind you of your own baptism. Amen? It should remind you that on that day, whether you verbalize it or not, you gave up the right, you forfeited the right to ever say no to your king again. And that the rest of your brothers and sisters have both the right and the responsibility when they see you acting in such a way that is rebellious to the king. They, need, they have the right and responsibility to love you enough and to love King Jesus enough to say, hey, that's not how our king's citizens behave. And care more about your soul in the name of our king and about that relationship. That's the kind of churches we need today. That's the kind of citizen kingdoms we need today. Um, and I want to ask you, as these are baptized, go back to your own baptism. I want you to remember it. I want you to remember what you were called to. Match that up against your life today. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. It's very, very possible. Today is the day to confess Him as your King. Today is the day to repent of your sin, to put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Today is the day that you give up the right to ever say no to this King again, as you own Him as your own. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today thanking you for 
King Jesus for what he has done, for the effectiveness of it, for the fact that our King has done all that is necessary, and all we must do is walk in that through faith by your grace and your great kindness. I pray that you would help us to do that today. And I pray that in a moment as Darby and Jennifer come and are, are baptized, Lord, that, that you would be pleased and that what happens here would, would, would uh, be something that they will remember for the length of their days and would take so very seriously the way that you do. May it be instructive to the saints in this room today. May it bring us to repentance and grief over our own sin, realizing that we have a king that we have no right to disobey. And Lord, for those that may be sinners in this place today, may you use this to cause them to wonder and ultimately to worship as they lay down their life, their sin, and pick up a cross. Call them to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.